0: Welcome to the Torah Resource Podcast. This summer, we're featuring a variety of teachings by Tim Hegg. Today's lecture, titled, You Shall Keep My Charge, was recorded during Shabbat service at Behalel Messianic Synagogue in Tacoma, Washington. Sermons delivered at Behalel are always interactive, which means the community chimes in with their questions and comments throughout the teaching. In this sermon, Tim Hegg is teaching on Parashah 142 of the three-year Torah reading cycle which covers Deuteronomy 21:10 through 22:7. If you would like to follow along with Tim's notes, you can find a link in the show notes of this episode in order to download a copy. Once you've done that, grab your Bible and a pen and let's get started with our teaching.
1: portion that we have today is a kind of uh, portion that evokes a lot of questions. I don't know if any of you have had uh, discussions, I'm sure many of you have had discussions with people that think, those of us that are talking about Torah and living in the, in the way of Torah, uh, that we have been fooled, we have been led down a wrong path, and that we are thinking that keeping the Torah is the way that we please God. And that's how we gain our salvation. And of course, when you talk with them, you say, no, I don't believe that. Years ago, there were some fellows that, um, that they wanted me to join them in a fishing trip. And I was, uh, I was busy and I said, well, I, I, I'd be happy to. I just don't know that I could afford it because they wanted to go, da- go down in Oregon somewhere. I forget what, uh, Sun Valley. No, it was, it was some kind of a special place. And uh, they said, well, you know, it's on our us. Come on, the three of them. And so I said, sure, let's go. I love to fish. And um, on our way down, we had a lot of conversations. And they said, Tim, um, we're, we're all believers in Jesus. I said, yes. He said, so we all have uh, the security that we will spend eternity with him. I said, yes. He said, so it doesn't matter if you eat kosher. It doesn't matter if you keep the Sabbath. It doesn't matter if you do all that stuff. We don't do it, and we're going to be with him. So why do you go through all this? Hmm. You know, doesn't that make sense? I mean, let's face it. Let's, let's turn the illustration a little differently. If somebody said, I'm, somebody invented a car, that when you buy this car, you never have to change the oil. You never have to change the tires. You never have to wash it because it stays absolutely clean no matter where you are and what you're doing. Say, well, okay, I buy that car, and now, you know, the, the poor neighbor has to constantly be changing his oil, has to constantly be, you know, why don't you just get the right car? You, you understand the argument. The argument is that stuff has just been, that just was external. We don't need that. We have Jesus. Now, I'm not saying that all believers in, in mainline Christian churches take that view. I know many of them don't. Okay, so I'm not trying to caricature our brothers and sisters elsewhere. Not at all. But there are those who kind of have the idea that I raised my hand, I went forward, I said yes, I received Jesus. Done, done deal. Right? In one sense, are they right? Yes. Because salvation is by faith in Yeshua and by faith alone. You can't add anything to it to make it better. God said through His Word that faith in His Son Yeshua gave the gift of life, eternal life. Right? so how do we explain to them what else the bible says now i don't think most of what this fellow ever said was true or is true i think he's still saying it but there's a famous name who came up with a slogan love wins he's right about that even if he missed when when We say yes to God. First of all, it's because he has made himself acceptable to us. Right? I've talked to people who adamantly say, you believe in that nonsense? That's a bunch of old, ancient, gobbledygook religion. There is no God. But but it's not for me. I'm not going down that path is true what i read is right the wages of sin is death but the free gift of god is eternal life free gift i can't buy it i can't earn it and i don't deserve it and how is it a free gift the free gift of god is eternal life how in yeshua messiah if this preacher were right there had to be somebody asking wait a minute this is in god's word has he changed does god change what verse would you quote me or would you point me to to prove that? How about Malachi 3? I, Adonai, do not change. Therefore, you, son, Israel of Jacob, are not consumed. Are not consumed. If God changed, then maybe His He he, he doesn't keep His promises. Right? Right? The text we read today loving-kindness and covenant faithfulness was forever you and i can't say that you and i can't say that we can say that is our desire but we're not we don't you know if i say to someone you know uh, i'll let you use my library forever i can't say that why because there's going to be a time when i'm not here Somebody else is going to be in charge of that. The only way you can make forever promises is if you are yourself forever. God made promises to us because he never changes. Are the liberal scholars right when they teach that the God of the Old Testament was harsh and demanding, described and revealed by Jesus in the New Testament, as kind and forgiving? Have you heard that teaching? I was back from the post office yesterday and the car in front of me you know it's interesting I like to read these bumpers it said my religion is loving kindness any of you seen that one I hadn't neither that was a new one with me neither that was a new one with me I thought well that's interesting loving kindness does the owner of this car mean chesed my religion is chesed loving kindness And then I looked at a few other bumper stickers on the same car and realized that wasn't what they were talking about at all. They were talking about showing loving kindness to everybody no matter what they believe, no matter what they do, no matter what they say. Now, should we show a sense of uh, love towards everyone in terms of them being created in the image of God? The answer is yes. Life is sacred. We ought to do all that we can to preserve life, no matter what the person who the okay? It's not in our, juris, okay. It's not in our jurisdiction to take to the hands of judges and so forth and so on. Okay, judges and so forth and so on. Okay, but there, this idea that just accept everybody, love everybody, just all get along. Doesn't seem to square with our Torah portion, does it? In fact. The one thing that we see as we study through the book of Deuteronomy and Leviticus and, well, the whole Torah is that we worship a God that is holy. And in some ways, this is such a great joy and such a great, you know, satisfaction that God is holy and he will not change. And yet on the other side of it, we think, oh, who can sit next to a consuming fire? Do you ever think of cuddling up on the lap of a con- lap of a consuming fire? How do we hold in intention the God who is infinite in his love, grace, mercy, and loving kindness, his gentleness, his faithfulness, his goodness, and at the same time recognize that he holds my life in his hand? And he is a consuming fire. So we believe that the word of God is eternal and that it was given to us by the Almighty so that we might know him in truth and enter into an intimate covenant relationship with him. Furthermore, we believe that the instructions given to us in the Torah not only tell us about the one who gave them, right? We're learning a lot about God when we study the Torah. But that they are also the safeguards given to us by a loving father protections that will keep us on the path of life to enjoy the blessings God intends for his children. This means that the laws he has given were good when he gave them and remain good for all time. If God is good and he gives a command to his people, then you have to say that command is good, right? God does not give bad commandments to his people. This is because we believe God is good and that all that he does and says is right and holy. Moreover, we believe on the basis of the Scriptures that Yeshua, our Master, believed and taught the same thing. In Matthew 5, 17-20, you remember this text, right? He said, don't let anybody tell you I came to abolish the law and the prophets. I didn't come to abolish the law. Why doesn't he say prophets? He just says, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to what? Fulfill it, to make it stand up, to make it come to its fulfillment. And he goes on to say, All of these verses are connected with and, or for. For I tell you, not the least stroke will be taken away from the Torah until everything is fulfilled. Heaven and earth won't be, as long as the heaven and earth are, it remains. And he goes on to say, for I tell you that the one who does these things and teaches others to do them will be great in the kingdom. But the one who does not do these things and teaches others not to do them will be what? What? Least in the kingdom. For I tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you won't even enter the kingdom of God. Apparently, Yeshua didn't realize that he was going to abolish the Torah. And there have been so many... By the way, he didn't abolish the Torah. That was tongue-in-cheek, okay, for the recording. Uh, If you just take that snippet out and put it on the internet, I'll I'll have to... Okay. Uh, but, but, but at any rate, um, we take the whole Bible as being consistent with itself. Why? Because we fully believe that ultimately the Spirit of God inspired all of the Scriptures and that the Spirit of God does not, is not self-contradictory. He is true because He is God. We believe that Yeshua, our Master, believed and taught the same thing that we find in the Torah and that he is grieved when the words of his father are mocked as the impractical legislation of an angry despot. In fact, viewing the Torah as the barbaric laws of an ancient society is entirely mistaken. The Torah is like the railing on a balcony that keeps people from falling to their death. In fact, God refers to the commandments and statutes he has given to us as my charge in Genesis 26.5 and Deuteronomy 11.1. A translation that masks the obvious meaning of the word, for it is mishmeret, derived from the verb shamar, to guard. It means my guardianship. The same word is used elsewhere of a guard post, the high point on a city wall or on the perimeter of a village where a guard is posted to watch for enemies and alert the people of danger. When used as description for the Torah, this word would better be translated as safeguards, Far from being a snare to condemn a wayward people, the Torah is given as a guard, a sentry, to alert us to danger that would otherwise harm us. Even more, enlightened by the Spirit of God to the hearts of those who have put their trust in God, the instructions of the Almighty protect us from danger and particularly from the danger of our own fallen perspectives and viewpoints. Okay, hand up in the back.
2: Good. All right. So, Tim, this is not my bailiwick at all. I don't even normally look at stuff like this. But it came up. There was an article on stream.org from Dr. John Zmerick from um, Yale University. You know who he is? Yes, I've met him before. And he basically sums it up by... He says that the modern church, and he comes from a Catholic perspective, right. the modern church is governed by what he calls not the Ten Commandments but the Ten Disenchantments (laughs) and it's all about what um, he calls it the post-Christian church yeah is uses their ethic you know it it discounts the um, deity of Yeshua it discounts the miracles and everything and I'll just read a couple and leave it there for anybody that wants to look at it he says these are the disenchantments of the modern church Um, outsiders are always right the underdog deserves to win every time Making judgments about people is evil, and it means you're a hypocrite. Religious observance is empty ritual, only valid for building a sense of community among the disadvantaged. Rebels and dissenters always, are always prophetic and deserve our attention. Number six is a tough one. Sexual sin is our um, mild um, peccadillos, and those who condemn them are much worse sinners themselves. And he goes on, he says, and that's the challenge that we're in. So you have all these people um, who have religiosity about them, but don't want to look at the Torah or give it its place or give Yeshua his place. And it's very amazing, and I had never thought about it until I read this man's article.
1: I just started reading a book by Peter Oakes, uh, the title of which is oh, um, The New Reformation in post liberal post liberalism uh, no yeah post liberalism and the Jews very quickly he's pointing out something that we've talked about before but he is really making a point of it and it is this that in uh, in early Christianity in emerging Christianity up through even our modern times every major theologian in mainline Christianity as held to supersessionism as an unnecessary aspect of their theology. Supersessionism is the teaching that the church has replaced Israel in God's plan. That Israel no longer has covenant with God nor God have covenant with Israel, but that covenant has been shifted to the church which Jesus promised to build. And he shows that supersessionism, and I have only started reading the book, but it's, it's, it's a tough one because Oakes is a philosopher, theologian type. So, but uh, but at any rate, it's very interesting that he says in post-liberalism, now he's talking about the church doing a new reformation, the church coming back to asking important questions that they don't have answers for. One of the primary questions is, what is the place of Israel in God's plan? And it's bothering a lot of mainline Christian churches, uh, according to his statistics. So yes, right along with what Al shared with us, when anyone begins a, whatever you want to call it, a religious theology that says God is done with Israel, what is the major problem? then God cannot be trusted. If God can't be trusted because he made a promise that says forever over here, and then he said, whoops, sorry, you guys didn't receive my son, so we're going with somebody else. If he can do that, then how can you trust what else he has said? You know, it's no longer nine commandments and one suggestion. Now it's ten suggestions that are wrong by some, right? You say, well, Tim, it's so harsh. No, it isn't. It is not harsh. When we put guards on our table saw so we don't cut our fingers off, when we put a a, a guard or a fence around a balcony so people don't fall off to their death, that's love, right? Right? One thing that you have to know about America, about the U.S. of A, and some of us rankle about this, I agree, I've done it myself. You know all the codes, when you're trying to do something, you're remodeling a a room in your house, and you're going to have it inspected, you know, and the inspector's going to come, and you're thinking, how do I do this, you have to call an electrician, To say, have I done this correctly? Is you know, is it in the right conduit? Is the right number of bends? Not too many bends, also, and so on. And you think it's just a lot of nonsense and political rigmarole until you go visit some place like Liberia and see how they make their houses. And it's no wonder when there's a, a two point something earthquake that hundreds of people die because their cement houses collapse on them. Why do we have codes like that? It goes back to our founding which was based upon one of this principle. Human life is sacred because human life has a creator. We have to do everything we can to preserve human life. Right? That's at the very warp and woof of our society. And what's happening in our times right now is that there is a seeking of erosion to that it comes across as like, oh, everybody's important. But when you have the laws allow aged, aged people to have their lives taken at their whim, and when you have a law saying you can take a child yet to be born and dispose of that, you have opened the door to life no longer being sacred. And when we open the door to that, everything begins to erode. So when we get back to our text it's not because there's something wrong with God it's because we need to understand what it's saying and how it applies I saw another hand go ahead Mike
3: you asked earlier how we can reconcile um, a consuming fire with somebody to cuddle up against like a consuming teddy bear I think (laughs) one can temporary Theologian, I forget his name has observed that uh, god 's holiness invests his love in Messiah for us as much as it invests his wrath against yes. sin and i right. 've heard you say you 've felt times when you felt like God was pulling a blanket over you, and he himself says he 's more tender and caring than any earthly right.
1: mother right exactly oh. exactly and in, in, in fact. Uh, Uh, feminine qualities are attributed to god Uh in an isaiah when he says that he nursed israel right you know god is does not have a the father does not have a body right right now he is revealed to us as father but he has the qualities of, of tenderness of a mother taking care of a small baby yeah when we read the torah as the loving instructions of our father who desires to bless us we understand them from a proper perspective we seek to know how these divinely inspired words reveal the very heart of our creator and how they instruct us in wisdom and righteousness of course such an enterprise requires diligence and hard work we cannot be satisfied with a mere surface reading that leaves us with more questions and answers nor can we attempt to understand god's word through the politically correct lenses of our day we must seek to know him as he has revealed himself not as mankind has refashioned him to fit his own agenda." And I'll just, you know, you're, I'm making a plug for this always, that's okay, um, you'll forgive me, I'm sure. I read this uh, article in the Master's Journal just uh, not long ago, and it, it showed how the Reformers, and regardless of where you stand with the Reformers, and you know, none of us agree with everything that they said, but the Reformation was a huge move forward in terms of uh, God's word being made active Every one of them attributed to their knowing and learning the biblical languages is what put them on a path that opened their eyes to the truth. So, um, if you've had that in your mind, say, I'd like to learn some Greek. Don't give up on it. It's a wonderful challenge. It's a good challenge. Or Hebrew. Or Aramaic. Okay, the Pasha for this Shabbat contains a number of related topics, though at first glance we may wonder how they're related. The first topic relates to warfare and the taking of captives, particularly of taking a captive woman for one's wife. Next, the text turns to the inevitable woes that attend polygamy and the plight of a wife who is unloved. Then come the laws pertaining to the matter of a rebellious son, followed by laws pertaining to capital punishment. Next are the instructions relating to things lost by one's neighbor and the requirement to care for them and return them. After this is the prohibition against cross-dressing, followed by laws of the humane treatment of animals. What all of these have in common, and no doubt why they are grouped together, is that they all relate to life-issued issues that have the potential of ruining community relationships. The first law relates, The first laws relate to family relationships, for families are the building blocks of any community. Let's stop and ponder that for a minute. What will be the enemy's attack? His attack will be to ruin the family. When he's able to ruin the family, divide it and and keep it divided. Faithful faith communities are in trouble. Then come laws dealing with relationships of the wider community. In all of these, the goal is that community should live in such a way as to manifest the presence of the Holy One of Israel within our midst. It says when we go out to war, that's how it begins. And as we talked about last week, this is an inevitability in our fallen world, Though ultimately war will be done away with when the rule of God is established worldwide. Until that time, the realities of war are matters with which we must deal. In the struggle of war, a soldier is called upon to defeat the enemy, a task which often requires the taking of life. In understanding such a duty, the soldier must often act out of pure impulse, for killing was never the design of God for mankind. The history of war has shown that often soldiers act out of their base passions and commit deeds of immorality against the conquered people. Such is not to be the case when Israel goes to war. Thus the soldier is not allowed to act out his impulses upon a conquered woman but must restrain himself for a full month and must look upon a woman of the conquered people as one created in the image of God and therefore worthy of consideration and right treatment. Furthermore, a physical relationship, even in the face of war, is allowed only within the context of marriage. It appears to give no choice to the woman. She is brought to the soldier's family dwelling and her nails and hair cut and allowed a month of mourning for her deceased family members. Since, uh, as you remember in our portion last week, the command was given to Israel that the inhabitants of a city conquered within the land were all to be put to death, we must presume that the woman spoken of in our text is not from the Canaanite nation, but from cities far away to which peace was offered before being attacked. In the opinion of the sages, it was always risky business for a soldier to marry a foreign woman from a conquered city, for the marriages initiated by, in such ways by passion often fail. They saw in the requirement that the woman abandon her native dress, meaning she clothes herself as an Israelite, shave her head and cut her nails, not only as a reference to a period of mourning, but also as indicating a mikveh, which they interpreted by later Holocaust conversion. Now, I don't think that's what it's saying. But what it's saying is there is a period of mourning that is given to the woman. And remember, she is fortunate because she remains alive. But in a conquered city, the fighting men would have all been put to death. Who was she to depend upon? How was she to maintain her living? There was a there is a sense in which, then, to be taken in by an Israelite man as a wife would preserve her and her children. After the period of a month, if the soldier continues to desire her as his wife, she is obliged to comply. Yet as noted above, that month of waiting is all-important. The impulsive passions of the soldier in the heat of battle are given time to subside, and the period of waiting allows him to consider the whole matter more rationally. We might also just maybe interject that there's the possibility that he seeks counsel during that, that, that month from family members and others. Furthermore, in the setting of the ancient world, where a woman left single was at a distinct and great societal disadvantage, To be married to a man, even a foreign man, who was required by the laws of his society to treat her with respect and to care for her was surely better than the alternative. Now, in our text, verse 14 of chapter 21 has been understood by some to teach that once the marriage had been consummated, if she no longer pleases the man who took her, he must, quote, let her go as she desires, without consequence, except that he may not sell her, that is, put her into slavery. But such an interpretation of the verse is reading too much into the text, And I might just say here, we have a similar parallel in Exodus 21 verse 7 and following. And we'll uh, just talk about that in a moment. But first, there is no reason to think that the soldier has already married and that the laws prescribed here are a concession to polygamy. The polygamists use this verse, but they use it out of context and they use it wrongly. Secondly, we should presume that often during the cooling off period of a month, it was the case that a soldier changed his mind and decided against marrying the woman. It is to this situation that the laws pertaining to her being let go apply, not to a dissolving of the marriage after it has been consummated. In fact, if you read in Exodus 21.7 and following, most of your English translations are saying that if he takes a foreign woman and designates her to himself and then he decides that she does not find favor in his eyes, he may designate her for his son or he may uh, let her go or keep her. But if he keeps her, your English versions keep going on to say, he may not diminish her food, her clothing, or her conjugal rights is what your text says. Well first of all the verse that says that he, he, when he designates her to himself if you some of your bibles will have this in the margin in the hebrew it actually has the word does not designate him, her to himself this is because this gets a little complicated by way of pronunciation the word lo in hebrew can mean not and the same word spelled differently but still pronounced lo can mean belonging to him But the original Hebrew has not. He does not designate. So in Exodus 21, it's not talking about a man who has two wives. It's talking about a man who who maybe first takes a, a captive woman and says, I think I want her for my wife, and then decides against it. The same thing we have going on here. In this case, however, since she has undergone the psychological trauma of preparing herself to marry a stranger, she has given her full freedom in our text taken to mean that she is allowed to assume the role of a ger toshav a resident alien within the community of Israel and thus given the privilege of protection from the Torah as would be a native born she has to be treated like a native born woman if a man wants to marry her he has to give a bride price to her father if her father is still living or he has to make some kind of agreement and so forth and so on the language used to substantiate her right to be released as she wishes is because you have humbled her this Hebrew phrase, tachat asher, means inasmuch as. The verb anah means to oppress, to do uh, injustice towards someone, to humble someone, and admittedly, it is used at times to mean to violate someone. Yet in this case, the word may simply mean that the woman was required to undergo the preparations for marriage without actually receiving the benefits, protection and sustenance, that marriage would inevitably afford. It is her having been humbled by such a rejection that provides her the opportunity to leave as she pleases. In contrast to the prevailing practice of the pagan nations in times of war, the Torah prescribes protection for even a foreign woman, protection that was unheard of in the ancient Near East. So here again, we have the Torah acting as a protection. Having prescribed the laws for a soldier who took a woman captive for the purpose of marriage, the text goes on to speak to the issue of polygamy. And particularly the apparent common occurrence that in a polygamous situation, one wife is loved and the other hated. And we know this is the common case. When you look in the scriptures where you have polygamy, I mean, look at Sarah and Hagar, right? I mean, you, 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 you see all of these, uh, I mean, excuse me. Well, at any rate, you see in the polygamous marriages, you see that there's a rivalry. And in fact, oftentimes the second wife is referred to as the rival. Rachel and Leah, right?
0: Have you ever wondered how the Bible was put together? The Bible we have now is the final form of what took millennia to write and compile. These books that we receive as canon are the result of a long history of God's people living with and accepting the word of God as it was delivered by his prophets and apostles. But what do we know about this history? Where did it all begin and how did it unfold? Much of this history is speculative, at least in terms of its ancient settings, but the Bible itself contains much of this history, and we are therefore able to piece together a reasonable estimation of how the process unfolded. In the book, How We Got Our Bible, Tim Hegg looks at the formation of the Tanakh, or the Old Testament, and the Apostolic Scriptures, or New Testament, including introductory matters of textual criticism, manuscript history, canonization, inspiration, and translation. Get How We Got Our Bible by Tim Hegg for 25% off through the end of July with the coupon code 2021HOW. That's How We Got Our Bible by Tim Hegg in softcover on sale for 25% off with the coupon code 2021HOW through July 31st. That's coupon code 2021HOW, 2021HOW, all in lowercase. Learn how we got the Bible in the form that we have it today get a copy for your personal library or as a gift for family and friends. Other options available in the product are 11 audio sessions with Tim Hegg teaching through each chapter of this book. In these lectures, Tim adds extra commentary and explanations as he takes the students through this material. Now let's get back to the study. If you're following along in the notes, we're at the top of the second paragraph on page three.
1: So, Once again, passages such as this, as well as Exodus 21.8, which I've already referred to, have been interpreted by some to indicate that polygamy was not only allowed, but sanctioned by the Torah. However, we must remember, and for those of you maybe that are listening and don't know what polygamy is, if you're younger, maybe no one's told you that, it means someone who has more than one wife. He has two or three or more wives. Well... How do we know for sure that's not what God wants? It starts at the very beginning of Genesis. A man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and they shall be one. Right? Who quotes that in the apostolic scriptures? Yeshua? And what's he talking about? Marriage. He said it was never supposed to be this way. We must remember that the Torah deals with inevitable issues of community in a fallen world in the same way that the Torah provides a solution for the thief, right? It says if you steal something, what are you supposed to do? Give it back and pay a fifth of the value, right? And then give a sacrifice, a guilt offering. So does that mean it's okay to steal? No. Yet in every way, condemn stealing So the Torah provides solutions for the inevitable negative outcomes of sinful choices in marriage and family. God never prescribed polygamy, and in the progressive revelation of the scriptures, we find out why. Marriage is to be a visible relationship of God's covenant relationship with Israel, and ultimately of Yeshua's relationship with his bride, the full remnant of Israel. Polygamy ruins that picture, right? How many wives does Yeshua have? It is the believing remnant of Israel and all who are grafted into that remnant. Right? Pardon me? The ecclesia. And when he said he promised to build the ecclesia, wasn't it already existing? Yes. Was it a remodel? No. It was an expansion. It was an adding on. A continual building up of the people of God. Yes, Mike. Am I on?
3: Yeah. Maybe some of us have seen, and I continue to shake my head, on television there is a program called Sister Wives and yeah. Polygamous Women. That Somewhere in the back there, there is something that is rebelling against that. They say, well, this is the way it is, and you just learn to share. You know, and,
1: yeah. Well, you know. The enemy loves to Uh mock God, and if marriage is to be a picture of our relationship with him, don't you think that the uh, enemy would want to undo marriage? Mm -hmm. Yes. Indeed, nearly every biblical narrative which speaks of polygamous marriage contains the unhappy scenario of one wife loved and another hated. Unfortunately, the selfish choices which lead to such a situation have their greatest devastation in the lives of the children. The bitterness of infighting which exists between the rival wives would surely be passed on to the children if they, like their mothers, were also treated unjustly. The Abraham-Hagar-Sarah triangle illustrates this directly. Regardless of what might have been the immediate cause of sending Hagar and Ishmael away, the overarching reality was that Hagar and Sarah could not exist together and the sinful choice of Abraham to take Hagar in the first place brought enduring consequences to Ishmael and his descendants seen even in our times. And Paul uses this very example. He says that, 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 that was that Ishmael is not the son of faith. it's the Son of the flesh. Why? Because Abraham said, "Oh, God's not hearing me. He said he's going to give me a descendant, and I don't have any. Okay? So I'll do it myself. I know I can do this. I can get it done. I don't need God. It's the flesh. The Torah commandments pertaining to the rights of the firstborn son are given to guard against the unworkable situations that polygamy brought. The firstborn son receives the double portion, which, should, which could mean double what other sons received, or could mean two-thirds of the estate. You might note Zechariah 13.8, where the same expression means two-thirds. It was not uncommon in the ancient Near East that the firstborn received the entire estate. The enduring principle here, however is that the sinful choices of the father, that is polygamy, did not negate the legal rights given to the firstborn son. The divine choice of the secondborn, a consistent phenomenon throughout the patriarchal narratives, right? You always see the second, you don't see the firstborn, you see the second or whatever uh, carrying on the promise of God. It's not in violation of this law. Israel is God's firstborn and has this status through divine election. God's choice of Isaac over Ishmael Jacob over Esau, and Joseph over Reuben is thus an identification of his firstborn son, which is not constrained through physical lineage or birth order. The law regarding a rebellious son has troubled many scholars and teachers, including sages. The rabbinic teachers point out that this law was never enacted. The way they get around this is say, well, it's kind of like parents don't do this. I hope you don't. I'm quite sure you don't. But I remember that there were times, it didn't happen in our house, but it happened in the the house of a friend of mine when I stayed overnight with him as a young boy, as a very young boy. The mother said, don't forget, there's snakes under your bed, so don't get out. And I thought, and I asked him, I said, is there really snakes under your bed? He says, no, she just says that so I won't get up. Well, there's some who take this law that way, that God said, if there's a rebellious son, stone him. And so every son is going, I better be careful how I respond to my father, to my mother. Well, that's the way the sages kind of take it, because they say it never, there's no indication that anybody ever did it, that ever, anybody ever enacted such penalty against their son. So as a deterrent to such behaviors, children are taught the Torah, and you can find it in the rabbinic sources that I've listed for you there at the bottom of page five, the language employed in our text helps define the situation, uh, how, uh, how it is envisioned. The son is described as a stubborn and rebellious—these are words used by the prophets to describe Israel as she turned from God and participated in idolatry. Perhaps the rebellious son is one who likewise refused to turn away from pagan practices, and who was even influencing others in his pagan ways. Moreover, the text indicates that the son had refused to heed the discipline of his parents. It says, when they chastise him, he will not even listen to them. Whatever the case, the Torah ruling regarding a rebellious son is a clear indication of what God thinks about rebellion. It also teaches us a very important principle. Children affect other children. The son who has entirely rebelled against his parents is a negative influence in the community. Since rebellion has a ready companion in the fallen nature of us all. You understand what I mean by that? There's a rebellion in all of us. Paul says that he beat himself down every day. Lest, having preached to others, he himself should be a castaway. And particularly in children who have yet to commit themselves to God's ways, a son who has given himself over to overt overt and continued rebellion will surely affect others. And even if a society is unwilling or unable to deal with the rebellion of its youth, God is not so constrained. As the Proverbs teach, the eye that mocks a father and scorns a mother, the ravens of the valley will pick it out and the young eagles will eat it. It's kind of gruesome, isn't it? That probably means a corpse that's laid out in the valley. This gory picture is given to show how dreadful the outcome will be for someone who persists in rebellion against parental authority. There's two sides to this, isn't there? Young people and children, you should listen to this. God wants you to be respectful to your parents and to obey them. But there's also a message to parents. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. There has to be God working in both sides. right? Rebellion against established authority is a capital crime in the Torah. The rebellious son is, is executed, though we presume this could only be done after a proper trial had been conducted and the son found guilty. In similar fashion, you know, you can't take a person's life unless there's two or three witnesses, right? And their witnesses are seen to be valid. In similar fashion, rebellion against the court draws the death penalty for adults as well, according to Deuteronomy 17, even if the original crime for which a man was charged was not a capital offense.
4: Just
1: push it once. Yeah. Oops, one more time.
4: I had some, I had somebody bring this up to me um, a while back, and I said, "Well, you need to read this in context with the rest of the Torah, because there's two there's a couple parts in this. First of all, it says that this was a disobedient son, which means if this was brought up before the elders of the uh, yeah. uh, the first thing they would ask the father is." Well, have you been doing according to the Torah where you were supposed to uh, continue teaching the Torah from the time that you get up in the morning, uh, you know, when he's lying in bed and when he's uh, standing and and when he's walking, uh, were you continually teaching him the law? And then uh, the second part was, if he was rebellious, were you chastising him? Uh, And why were you chastising him? Were you chastising him because... Uh, he was rebellious against the law, or were you chastising him because you were angry uh, from a personal perspective? Uh, and I think this is the reason why we have no uh, record of this ever happening, because a father would have to examine himself before he ever brought it up to the elders right. yeah. and saying that, well, this is a rebellious son and he's drunken, and, and he's doing all these other things. Right. Well, what were you doing And were you doing your part or was this uh, the rebellion of his son uh, because he was out doing his own thing uh, rather than being at home and being taught the things that he should have been taught?
1: Good point. The next laws of our prasha deal with the corpse of a criminal who has been executed. Hanging the corpse on a pole or impaling the corpse on an execution stake was done in times of war in the ancient Near East as a psychological tactic. There is indication in some of the ancient Near Eastern texts. Now, you can't always count these as historical because kings liked to exaggerate about their victories. But there are texts which talk about impaling on spiked posts hundreds of corpses from the city that they just conquered. Assyrians were known for this. And this is why they won many wars psychologically. They would do it and then they would let a few of them go and say run you're free and they would run to the next town and they would tell the town what happened and when the town would hear the assyrian army coming they would all just vacate it was done to bring dread to the enemy and weaken the spirit of the opposing troops According to recorded history, it was, not a, it was not a common practice, it was not an uncommon practice in ancient, oh no, it was not a common practice in ancient Israel, though our text would indicate that it was done. Leaving a corpse unburied was considered a particularly accursed punishment, since it was believed in many cultures of ancient times that an unburied corpse had no possibility of finding rest in the future world. The sages ruled that even the corpse of an executed criminal was not to be maltreated because even the criminal was created in the image of God. We know that this text was used against the followers of Yeshua, for it states clearly that the one whose body is hung on a stake, in this case, a meaning of wood, which is often bears and not specifically a living tree, is cursed of God. Since Yeshua was executed by the Roman method of of crucifixion, his enemies took up the polemic that this proved God had cursed him. In fact, this was the case. Yeshua, our master, took upon himself the curse that each of us deserved as rebellious sons, right? Paul makes this point in our apostolic section in Galatians 3.13. Messiah redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. The point is that Yeshua was not cursed for his own rebellion, but for ours. He took our punishment so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And by the way, I have a couple of things, an option for the afternoon study, and one of them is that a question came to me about uh, how is it that Paul says that uh, Yeshua was born under the law, and what does that mean? We could discuss that. And I also have, uh, uh, I did some study on what does it mean to pray in the spirit, so I'll let you decide what we study, any of you that want to come to the air-conditioned room in the back. But it was also our Torah text that compelled the uh, followers of Yeshua to find a way to remove his body from the cross and bury it as quickly as possible. Likewise, it is this text that forms the basis for the rabbinic ruling that a body should be buried on the day of their death, something regularly practiced among the Jewish communities today, unless a delay is necessary for a suitable, honorable burial. Next, our parasha outlines the laws pertaining to personal property that is lost and the obligation of the one who finds it to return the lost items to the owner. Which is why some of us stamp our name in all of our books. If you happen to have a book and you don't know whose it is and you open it up and it has someone's name in it, what are you obligated to do? <laughs> Find that person and give it back to them. I've actually called, I've, I picked up a couple of books some years ago that, had, um, that it was from a, library, uh, a university library in the area, And it didn't have the withdrawal notice. Usually, at library, when they withdraw something, they stamp it as withdrawn or something to that effect. And I called them and said, you know, I I bought these books at a used bookstore, but it has your stamp in it, and I'm more than willing to return them to you. And they said, oh, you know, we had a whole bunch of books that we discarded and we forgot to stamp them, declined or you know, taken away. Said, which one is it? I gave them the title, and they looked and they said, oh, no, 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 you, that's fine. You can you can keep that. Yeah, and where are the rest, yeah. And could you tell me where the rest of the books are? No. (laughs) Yes. So, if you find something that isn't yours, you should try to find the owner. How far does that go? What happens if you find crayons or pencils on the floor when you're cleaning up after Shabbat? Well, you know what we do, We we put them in a drawer in the back, so if you've lost one, you should go look. We don't know. Some would say that if it's not identifiable, that you can't find the owner. So if you find a dollar bill on the, on the sidewalk, you could look around and say, "Has anybody here just passed or whatever, but there's no identification on that. How would you know that that person dropped it? So there's, there's all kinds of issues that go on with this. This and the section on removing the young from a nest formed the basis for entire sections of rabbinic halakha you can expect that the rabbis will take one sentence and make five volumes, okay? So personal ownership is considered by the Torah of high value and is to be guarded by the community. Whether the items are of high value, an ox, a lamb, or donkey, or of lesser value, garments, other common items, makes no difference. What belongs to another person is to be safeguarded and returned. If what is found requires maintenance, such as feeding an animal, this is to be provided in order that the lost property may be returned in the condition in which it is found. The sages ruled that if such maintenance was costly, then the item is returned, the owner may have legal obligations to repay the one who found it for the expenses incurred in keeping it. Moreover, the Torah teaches that we are not allowed to ignore the lost item. You may not hide it from them or conceal the the matter. Even though finding a lost item may require some sacrifice in guarding it and, in the case of an animal, maintaining it, one is still obligated to do so. The principle, is that we are to put the good of our neighbor above our own needs and desires. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Loving your neighbor doesn't mean giving your neighbor everything that they want. Right? That isn't always love. But loving your neighbor saying, when there's something that is lost and I have the ability to return it, I must. Otherwise, I've stolen it. This is confirmed by the fact that the section ends with the admonition to help a neighbor whose animal has fallen. If we would do so when our neighbor obviously needs our help, we must do so even when our neighbor is unaware that he has lost something. Moreover, as the final section of our prashah indicates, we are to care for animals themselves, so that helping a neighbor lift up a fallen animal, both the neighbor and the animal are aided. It's interesting. Why are we to help animals? It's because they were created by God. They're from the Creator's hand. The section prohibiting cross-dressing most likely, most likely deals with the debased practice of paganism in sexual deviancy and homosexuality. It refers to a man appearing as a woman or vice versa. One of the commentators, to Gay notes that such perversions are documented in pagan literature, and I've given you his commentary and page number. God intends that we live according to the gender roles in which he has created us, We are to be grateful that we are male and female and to find in our created roles the joy that comes from being who God created us to be. This again is foundational for a functional, godly community. This is a bigger issue in our time than ever before. And uh, I I use this text sometimes to answer people who say only what's what's commanded in the New Testament is what we are to obey. I said, well, okay. Is there anywhere in the New Testament where it says that a man shouldn't wear women's clothes? So it's okay to do that then, huh? There's numbers of others you can list that are not listed or repeated in the Apostolic Scriptures, which clearly are moral issues, and we find them in the Torah let me just emphasize this again, and our young people are barraged with this, especially our young people that may go to public schools or have friends who go to public schools. Um, Had an opportunity, a a nurse uh, in the area had this right here in University Place, uh, had a copy that is not given to parents, it's not given to teachers, but it's given to uh, medical professionals about what, how they're doing sex, sex education in the schools and that they're doing it right here or planning to do it. They're hoping to do it right here in University Place. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable, okay? But they start out by simply saying this, and I, I hope this is not inappropriate for our mixed company and younger children, but they need, you parents need to help them understand this. They say, sex is not determined by body parts sex is to be defined as one person attracted to another person that's how it starts out and they're they're starting this not in all the explicit things but they're starting this in the third grade so we have to take a careful approach to this we cannot hate others who disagree with us on this. But on the other hand, we must hold a firm uh, uh, position, and it is this. God is our creator. We were created in his image. We were created by him for his purposes, and he created male and female. And why did he do that? I can only give you one suggestion, because he could have just created one gender, right? I mean, God could have done that if that's what he wanted. I think it's because being created in the image of God is, in the inexplicable way, a reflection of what we is a mystery to us about God. God is one. Is there only one God? Does He reveal Himself to us in a plurality? Does three equal one? No, it doesn't. Three does not equal one. Uh huh. When you say, when you go to the store and you say, I want three of those, and they give you one, you say, okay? No. (laughs) If it's a package of three, it would work. No, mathematically, three does not equal one. We know that to be the case. Our whole rational way of thinking is based upon um, an either-or reality. Either it's one or it's not one. God reveals himself as infinitely one and describes himself as a plurality. Let us make man in our image. It's a plural. Why do you suppose he did that? Because the only way you can accept God is coming to the end of your ability to rationally explain him and say, I believe what you say to be true. That's called faith. For you philosophers... Is faith a an epistemology? Is faith a way of knowing that you know? Yes, it is. Faith is as much a reality of what you know to be true, as seeing it, or touching it, or feeling it, or being able to explain it to its nth degree. Uh, I guess I've got off on philosophy, I apologize.
2: It's okay but it's beyond just a knowing. It's an action word.
1: Okay. Sure. And I listened to a a program years ago. I never could find it again. It makes me wonder where it is. It was a mathematician from India. He was one of the youngest Rhodes Scholars coming out of, I think, Yale. And he was explaining why our mathematics don't make sense. And he was showing how our mathematics don't make sense. And one of the ways that he showed this is you should be able to divide by zero. If zero is a reality in our mathematics, then you should be able to divide a number by zero, but you can't do that. Why? It's because our mathematical system doesn't fit everything. It doesn't work in every case. And I thought to myself, isn't that interesting? You can't figure God out with mathematics. You know why? Because the only way you can define infinity is by limiting infinity. How How do you describe infinite? No beginning and no ending. Wait, beginning and ending, those are finite. The only way we can define infinity is by finite terms. Why? Because we're finite. Don't think that you can figure God out with your mathematics. He revealed himself to us three ways, and in those three ways we know him. Are we willing to accept him as he's revealed himself? And the answer is yes, if by that you mean faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. The evidence, faith is evidence. It's good evidence. It's just not the evidence that the rational mind can all fit together and piece it and say, I got it all. That's why I think he created male and female. Are there anything more different than male and female? Are there anything more similar than male and female? How is it possible that male and female could become one? God is one. He created us with the ability to be one, even though we are plural. The final laws pertaining to a bird and its young in a nest highlight the compassion of God that extends even to the animal kingdom. The animals that God created are cared for by him and he has entrusted their care into our hands as well. The natural ties between a female and her chicks is implanted by the hand of the creator and are therefore to be acknowledged and fostered. Inhumane treatment of animals, something that inevitably attends pagan rituals is not to be found among the people of God. I'll just interject here. In the Jerusalem Council, Acts 15, it says you shall not not eat blood. In the pagan uh, rituals, it is well known that they took a female and her young and they slaughtered the female in the young sight in a very slow and gruesome way so that the young would be turmoiled. Her offspring would be turmoiled, and then they would drink the blood. The apostles said to those Gentiles coming in by faith into the believing community you can have nothing to do with the pagan temples that have those kinds of rituals. You don't strangle an animal and wait for the animal to die slowly, you don't eat blood. As those who acknowledge the kingship of the Almighty, we are to extend proper compassion to the living things He has created. But we should remember in our times, animals, contrary to the bumper sticker, animals are not people, and people are not animals. There's a difference. As with all good things that come from the Creator's hand, however, even the care of animals can be abused if priorities are confused. Clearly, human life is of greater value than the life of an animal, since animals were not created in the image of God. When the life of a person is given less dignity than that of an animal, it is clear that God's ways have also been abandoned. Regrettably, in the history of our own country, there are times when a slave had less value than the animals he or she tended. Even in our present world, there are instances where personal pets are given greater care and attention than children. If, however, we submit to God's clear directives, we will abide by his priorities, loving children as they are intended to be loved, while at the same time showing appropriate compassion and care for animals. In the end, what our Pashah emphasizes once again is that the commandments of God are given to us so that we might live as God intends, and in so living to honor him by sanctifying his name in our world, enjoying to the fullest the blessings he has promised to those who love him. Okay. Last questions or comments? Mike.
3: I don't know if I've used up my quota yet, but about the, uh, you can give me a warning or something. About the rebellious son, I think we have a good template for the rebellious son in the model of Absalom, where Mm -hmm. he's doing something to deliberately cut off the life or cut off the resources to life of his parents. It'd be similar to uh, Someone they're selling drugs out of their home and when they're and selling their parents' possessions and cursing their parents when their parents start questioning Uh his actions. I think that'd be pretty close to a genuine rebellion. Well
1: it's it's very possible, and I didn't bring this up, but it's very possible that the rebellious son has done something, has committed crimes that are in the Torah uh capital punishments. And so This, in Deuteronomy, is before they've come into the land. They haven't set up courts. They haven't set up so forth and so on. So, of course, it does say to the gates, uh, to the city gates or something to that effect. So it is anticipating coming into the land. But it could be also that uh, parents could eventually have to take a rebellious son to the judges and say, this is what our son has done.
3: Uh, What I've read also about that is that, um, that they are presumptuous sins. That that is the rebellious, that's what the rebellious son does. And also um, what? um, Sense of the higher hand.
1: Yeah, sense of the high hand, yeah. The rebellion, yeah. Mm
5: -hmm. I think it's important too to remember the context that when they actually did go into land with Joshua at the end of chapter one, they basically were saying, We're gonna go into this land and completely destroy every inhabitant. That's God's command. And they also said to each other, if we don't follow these laws, do the same to us. So it right. wasn't like they were, they were including themselves. So I think uh, it isn't the idea of the powerful, almighty father you know, killing the inferior, weak son. It's a mutual, both father and son are obligated to keep the covenant. And I think as clans are concerned, again, just looking at Joshua. So you read the end of Joshua, and the tribe that was on the other side of the Jordan made it alter. And it's like Israel goes, oh no, we're going to have to go kill them because they're violating the covenant. And then, you know, they don't end up doing it because there's this long explanation. But the idea is everyone is all in. There's not one person that gets excluded from being obligated to keeping God's covenant. We're all in and we're saying it applies to us too. If we fail, then we're looking to each other saying, hold me accountable. So there's a ac- mutual accountability. It's not one being more superior than the other, and I think that context has to be understood right. rather than just pulling this out and saying, "Well, that can't be right." Yeah. Well, it's it's a matter of and using the king's secession. I talked about this a little bit. So Absalom rises up. He's saying, "I'm the rightful king." David, humiliated, walks out of the city, and it's God's action that hangs him in a tree yeah. and shows him that his heart was not right, but that tells us that there's more than just one generation that's concerned. And I think that's part of a very difficult Torah command.
1: Yes. And I think all of us who are fathers would say that's, you know, that's an impossibility. I couldn't do that. I, you know, um, there's no way. And you think, okay, well then may this never come to that point. must have been the heart of a father who, ha- who understood this commandment. It was like, I will never allow this to happen. I will continue to love my, my son and, and help him walk in a way that would never let him go this direction. So it's as much a, it's a, a, an impelling force to a father as it is a deterrent to the son. Yeah, okay, any last comments? Okay, right over here with uh, Ken.
4: On the uh, gender issue, I've been watching a series by Joni, J-O-N-I, on I don't know if it's TBN or Daystar, in which they cover these issues. It was quite enlightening. I, I imagine that because it was probably put on by uh, one of the prominent people's wives, uh, that it's something you could probably look up. And uh, it's, it was very enlightening.
1: Yeah, good. All right, Ken, right over here. Yep. Was it a problem back then with
4: Jewish men taking wives from conquered tribes or cities, with them falling into idolatry, following their wives?
1: Absolutely. When we come to Ezra, Ezra and Nehemiah, he requires them to send their foreign wives away, and it, it sounds very harsh, but it seems to me it was because they were continuing in their pagan uh, practices and worship. And there was no way that they were going to rebuild a community after the exile, with that, with that, uh, with their children growing up with that. Yeah. Unfortunately, that seems to be a reality.
0: If you would like more information about Torah Resource or to browse our product catalog and free resources, please go to torahresource.com. Our mission at Torah Resource is to provide biblically based education for disciples of Yeshua. To download a copy of Tim's commentary, you can find a link in the show notes. Also in the show notes, you can download a triennial Torah portion reading schedule. Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you haven't already, please subscribe and share this resource with your family and friends. And be sure to join us next week as we study through the Torah with Tim Heg.